Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today we're going to be talking about the thing that holds it all together, so to speak. David, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, um, uh, I'm David Courtney, and I um, um, uh, started Courtney & Co. back in 2016 um, with the intention of trying to revive uh, uh, button making in the UK. Because at that point, technically speaking, there was no production of buttons in the UK. Well, there there was one button maker um, uh, left over who was uh, making uh, uh, buttons out of uh, nylon and polyester. But um, our the, the company whose um, ethos, I suppose, we're following was James Grove and Sons Limited, which um, sadly um, went down in December 2012, on the 20th of December 2012, um, after 155 years of continuous trading. And they were world famous for horn buttons, uh, but also um, buttons of other uh, natural uh, materials. And um, uh, this is really where we have um, effectively picked up from um, uh, and tried to revive that because it's a completely different type of uh, um, uh, material from uh, polyester, nylon and and the like. So I think the best place to start here now is... Grove and Sons had gone under. Mm-hmm. You were sitting around one day enjoying a cup of tea and thought, I'd like to get into the button business. No, nothing like that. Um, it's, it's a, it is an extraordinary thing. Uh, um, so uh, I have long had an interest in kind of uh, manufacturing, British manufacturing, which has gone down year after year. And I, I used to lament the loss of, uh, of some really venerable names and, you know, skills that, that disappeared along with it. Uh, close to where we live, we had both uh, a Woodstock Glove, um, which were known around the world, and Whitney Blankets. And, and literally, you know, from uh, uh, employing thousands of people at the, their peak, they just disappeared. And um, I suppose we've seen so many of those instances where not just businesses, but entire industries have disappeared. Um, and uh, the button-making industry was really going in, in pretty much the same direction. Um, so from a position where, you know, in the mid-1960s, there were 50 or more button makers in the UK of companies, let alone people, it really had got uh, whittled down to the fact that uh, James Grove was the last of its type when it uh, uh, um, collapsed in, in 2012. So um, I I was uh, unaware of it, and I wasn't actually uh, looking to uh, get involved in button making. I've got no real kind of background in, in the sartorial world itself, apart from you know going to my tailor for the last thirty years and getting him to look after me. But um, it was actually on the fifth of June, uh, twenty thirteen, that an article appeared in Country Life magazine, um, which was an appeal um, uh, aimed at um, raising funds for at least some of the heritage and some of the last remaining machines from James Grove to be uh, um, re- rescued effectively, with the intention of, uh, of reviving it. Um, so. I kind of looked at that article and 
for whatever reason, I decided that enough was enough. I would stop complaining and actually start to do something about it. So I uh, picked up a phone and got in contact with somebody who was actually leading the charge on this and introduced myself. And I suppose a week later, we owned uh, a mini factory of, uh, of button making machines and uh, and as much of the heritage of James Grove as we could get our hands on. What was the state of this factory when you when you bought it? Well, it's such a, a, a tragic story. It really is a tragic story because um, it was around about 2008. Uh, James Grove, uh, um, which had operated from almost a single site throughout its 155 years, the Bloomfield Works in Hales-Owen in the West Midlands. Um, and it had a very large, sprawling Victorian uh, factory that, um, uh, you know, uh, employed at one point in time 600 people. I mean, it was a really substantial kind of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, enterprise. And it was so well known that actually it said that uh, at one point in time, uh, a consignment of horn was sent over from uh, India with the address of James Grove, England. And it got there. They were that (laughs) well known. So... um, in around about 2008, 2007, 2008, they decided actually that they needed to upgrade a lot of their top technology. And they uh, bought um, around about £1.5 million worth of new machines. You know, it was a big, big undertaking. Um, and it was going to be financed through effectively um, uh, the redevelopment of the site whereby they built a brand new um, uh, factory on, the, on part of the site and had sold... Uh, uh, by option, um, the remainder of, of of the site to a property developer, and of course, what happened is we had the property uh, the the credit crisis of uh, of twenty oh eight. The developer wow. pulled out. Grove actually then had to take delivery of uh, of the machines. Um, the value of the property halved virtually overnight. Um, banks started to get involved, and I think you can kind of follow the the, the story mm. from there and it it started a, a very very difficult uh, uh period um coincided i suppose as so many of these companies do with the generational change so peter grove who was the last direct descendant of james grove um was probably in his Oh, late sixties at that point in time, something like that, uh, and neither of his children had an interest in taking over. So there was, uh, for the first time ever in its entire history, um, it went to um, an outside management team um, who were not really familiar with button making or manufacturing, and perhaps made, you know, some turns that that didn't work out and compounding with everything else that was going on um it it brought the company down but you know that that's that was the end of it It was a very very sad time oh it wasn't the fact that people didn't want buttons anymore or that all the machinery was conked out or no no, quite uh, the reverse. In actual fact, you know, they had a full order book. Uh, one of their principal clients was Burberry, um, uh, but Burberry were uh, um, uh, making uh, needed a, a, a certain finish on the buttons that, that were being supplied, um, and it was technically not very uh, sensible to do it that way. 
they required lacquering, but but as a porous natural material, horn isn't really very good for uh, um, uh, finishing in that way. And so the lacquer would actually peel off after a period of time, and you know it caused returns and uh, angst to uh, an upset and everything else. Um, and uh, it was such a big part of Grove's business that you know when that started to falter. Um, uh, together with all the other kind of problems that it was experiencing in the background, it, it really was it was overwhelming. Um, and so there were people who had worked for the company 50 years. Um, uh, there were people who had come from generations who had all worked at the at the factory. Um, you know, people met and married uh, uh, through the factory. Uh, their children, their, their uncles and aunts worked at that factory. So it was it was a huge time, and it was extremely sad that you know it happened just five days before Christmas, and the uh, the administrator walked in, marched everybody out into the car park, and told them that their jobs had been lost, and that was oh, it, Lord. and that was the end of one hundred and fifty five years. And how many people were working there at that point? It was relatively small by that time. So Grove had moved on a lot from the the the, the, the twenties when it employed six hundred people, and in those days it literally would get the horns out of uh, out of India and they would process them directly themselves. Uh, latterly, they were buying as we do blanks, round blanks from uh, suppliers as opposed to the horns, and then drawing the blanks uh, from it. Um, so there were around about 25, 30 people left over, but they were really the last of, of their kind in, in the country and extremely highly um, uh, skilled and, and experienced. So you came in roughly half a year after it had closed down. Yeah. And what, what did you what was there for you to get started on? Well, it, it, um, the odd thing uh, is that uh, because I've got no uh, experience or background in button making, it was never my intention to do that. In fact, the article that, that, that appeared was, was kind of placed through a gentleman who will remain nameless, um, uh, who was leading this particular charge. So we had come to an arrangement whereby we would actually buy machines, etc., and lease it to a new company uh, that was then going to restart um, the actual process. The, um, the company, for various reasons, never got off the ground. And uh, at the end of, I think it was 2015, um, it collapsed as well. And so uh, by default, I was left with a factory full of machines that we didn't really know what to do, didn't know how they worked, uh, had absolutely no idea about button making whatsoever. Um, and I suppose we were faced with two choices, one which was to sell up and just walk away, or two, to try and find some way of using them. Um, um, this was the point where you were enjoying a cup of tea and developed a sudden interest in buttons. <laughs> um, well, yes, my wife might dispute that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, we did go down that route. And it, it, so we, we started um, back in 2016 working with um, uh, a gentleman uh, who had been making polyester nylon buttons um, in the UK. Um, and, uh, and, and indeed still does, but, but it, it's a complete, it's a different 
material with very different kind of uh, processes, particularly in finishing and dyeing and even in turning to that extent. Uh, but it was kind of uh, along the basis that you know th- there was going to be some skills transference over over time. So whereas at the beginning, a hundred percent of what was done was was done right from the you know the start to the finish, of so the dyeing, the polishing, the turning, everything. Um, uh, we then bought our own factory in the Cotswolds in Bolton on the Water in 2016, and then moved all of our the, the machinery over there with the exception of some which were necessary for the the, the trades the the actual you know making the buttons that was that was needed um so um yeah it, it kind of happened by by default again it was never intended we had no customers we had no contact with anybody in in the market um had no idea about sourcing we had no idea about pricing we had no idea about marketing we had no idea per you know period so it was quite something to sort of complete the picture what were you doing before you fell into this well um i've been working in the city for uh, i suppose uh well since 1982 so that would uh, be around about 30 years uh, just over 30 years but i had worked in you know uh, 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 spices commodities these are in the day when the city actually worked and not just traded um so uh, you know i was involved in copper cocoa sugar rubber tin i mean you know proper commodities um uh, and you know so I, I always had an interest in the raw materials and actually seeing raw materials being processed and created uh, in in a finished form. Um, and this is really an extension of it, I suppose. So at this point, with basically nothing to go on, mm. you started making buttons. You didn't – there weren't any of the original Grove people around who could help out? Um, sadly not. Um, uh there, there were a couple left, um, but they were getting on in age. Um, one of whom uh, had been suffering from cancer um, for for some period of time, who had actually worked for Grove and only Grove in the entire life. Started at fifteen and lost his job, you know, on that fateful day in twenty twelve. Um, he had uh, um, cancer and sadly died from COVID uh, two years ago. Um, and we had access to him and his knowledge, but um, it wasn't easy because he was in and out of hospital. He had various kind of uh, um, issues going on, etc. Um, and then there was another chap who we do keep in contact with, who was the former uh, head dyer and polisher um, uh, at the at the company, who uh, 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 was also extremely helpful, but but lived 60 miles away and, and, and sadly never learnt to drive. So it was never easy getting him to visit us, etc. Given all this and given the starting point, I mean, how did you go about building it up again? Do you know, I can't, that's a, such a good question. I, I really... I, I'm, almost hesitant to answer because I can't really piece this all together. It literally was organic. The odd thing about it was that, uh, uh, so um, we decided that actually horn was going to be too difficult a material to start with. It is notoriously difficult to, to work. 
um, uh, uh, because there are certain preparations uh, involved before you can even make the button. And finishing it is extremely difficult as well. So we decided to start with Corozo. Um, uh, um, and it was a, <laughs> such a, again, an interesting situation because uh, literally um, going online and trying to find a source of Corozo from Ecuador and uh, managed to find a merchant in Ecuador selling Corozo to button makers around the world. And after a number of uh, uh, weeks of uh, uh, emails going back and forth, uh, I placed an order for, um, uh, I think it was $2,000, $2,500 worth of, um, uh, of uh, Corozo b- um, uh, blanks. Shortly thereafter, um, Mantua, uh, which is where they were based, um, uh, was uh, hit by an earthquake. And all the communications went down, um, internet went down, and it was lost for about six weeks. So there I was sitting with a whole of $2,500 in my bank account and nobody to speak to about the status of our order. And when eventually it did appear, uh, we managed to get back in contact. They released the, um, uh, the actual consignment and then it got lost. Because instead of it being flown to Birmingham International Airport, it arrived in Birmingham, Alabama. Nobody knew anything about it. And so they put it into the back of a warehouse and basically forgot about it. And it was almost two months later that actually somebody found it and then dusted it down and thought, oh, oh, right, this is what we've been looking for. And, of course, they then sent it on to uh, Birmingham International, where Her Majesty's Customs and Excise were more than interested at taking a peek at this white material that arrived from Central America. Um, uh, and the bags were literally <laughs> torn to shreds because that they, were, they must have been absolutely con- uh, convinced that this was some kind of illicit uh, um, uh, uh, trade in, in action here. But eventually it was released, and we, we got our first consignment of, uh, of Corozo, probably four, five months after the order was placed. So that was the baptism. And um, we, we proceeded to make uh, like a capsule collection, um, you know, uh, the first basic uh, um, one or two uh, styles, one or two um, uh, sizes and one or two colours and started putting them on a pattern card and, and, uh, and just seeing what happened. We weren't on Facebook, we weren't on Instagram, and I thought actually probably the, the best way to go forward was a retail market. So we had literally thousands and thousands of, uh, of cards made up um, onto which we would populate the buttons, stick them on. Um, and, you know, we placed advertisements in some uh, um, magazines and I went round to various haberdashers and so on and so forth. Got absolutely no traction whatsoever. And... Um, out of the blue, we had a phone call from some people in London, from Black Horse Lane um, Atelier. Um, and uh-huh. they said, we understand you're making Corozo buttons. We would be interested. And I said, oh, yeah, we are. Um, uh, but would you like to see some? And lo and behold, they said yes. I went to visit them. And they then started to introduce us to a few of their customers. And from there, it mushroomed. And it was... It was divine intervention. I mean, I just never had any kind of intention of going that way or any plan. It just literally happened by by default. At this point, it wasn't just you trying to make buttons or having learnt to make Corosa buttons. Um, it pretty much was. So we had the chap in uh, in Corby 
who uh, was was making them, as I say, he he was familiar with making uh, polyester nylon buttons, uh, but never had done anything with uh, with uh, um, uh, material like corrosive or horn or, or whatever. Um, so he was learning as much as possible, and then referring to um, uh, the the former Grove employees to get a little bit more background into it, etc., and trying to learn as as we went. But at the same time, um, I, I was really interested in, in, as I say, kind of looking at ways to uh, kind of improve the situation. Um, and so I can't remember. It was probably around about 2018 after a, a couple of years of, of um, vocal opposition. My wife decided that if you can't beat them, then join them type of thing. So she started uh, dyeing the buttons. We, we had a tiny little dye shop and she started dyeing the buttons to give us a little bit more background. She had no background at all in in dyeing or buttons or anything remotely like it. Um, we had to learn from our suppliers in, in Italy actually how to dye what materials and what lengths of times and so on and so forth. And so suddenly we started buying our own buttons and what have you. So, um, so yeah, my wife joined uh, in 2018 and I suppose it was 2019 that we then took on um, another chap um, uh, who's still with us, who's now kind of making buttons for us. Uh, but it took him, uh, you know, it's taken him the better part of three years to, really understand the machines and how they work and uh, and get to grips with it. So I suppose most people might find it a little odd because a button, I mean, there's not much to it, is there? But I'm starting to suspect there may be a lot more to it than we suspect. Uh, it, it It is really amazing because actually uh, the, 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 it's a really um, accurate uh, so the, the blanks are uh, trimmed to within one hundred one hundredth of a millimeter, um, and uh, uh, you have to align the machines that that work in almost like a clockwork uh, mechanism, uh, whereby the the blanks are actually introduced to different cutters that then turn for each of the different sequences. Um, so uh, uh, profiling the fronts, profiling the backs, drilling the holes, uh, and so on and so forth, and you know. To, to make a button, to turn a button, literally can take 15 seconds. To set the machine up to do that can literally take hours because you have to be 100% accurate. If you're slightly out, so the, the, the holes don't appear in the right place or you get little kind of uh, um, uh, uh, bits of uh, uh, chipping or uh, uh, and so on, getting to understand the speed of uh, the machine for different size buttons, for different materials, it, it was a, a huge undertaking, and you would never believe, actually, how complicated it is. I certainly didn't. You've sort of worked out most of it now, and you are making enough buttons. And yeah, well, it, it again. I suppose you know this is just uh, they say about life being what happens while you're making another plan. So uh, Steve came on board in 2019. And we ordered a brand new machine, uh, um, the, the top of the range and state of the art, because we discovered really that the machines that we had uh, acquired uh, were perhaps getting a little bit 
we are old like me. Um, and so uh, the idea was that actually the supplier of the machines is also an Italian company. Um, they would actually deliver the machine and then train us on that machine uh, at the same time. Uh, it was due for delivery, I think, around about the 21st of March 2020. Oh. Um, well, uh, yes, COVID put uh, kind of a line under that. So um, the machine was then delivered in July after uh, Italy came out of lockdown. And indeed, we came out of lockdown. And the machine arrived in a great big uh, uh, container. And we had it. The problem then being that actually the Italians uh, uh, go on holiday in, in August. So the factory was actually closed down the entire month of August. So we had the machine, but we didn't even know how to turn it on, basically. Um, and when they returned, they went back into lockdown. So actually, we had our first instruction in September of 2021, which was... 15 months after the um, arrival of the machine. And uh, so that was last September. And uh, we had an engineer come over for a week. And it literally was, uh, you know, from the very, very beginning to the very end of how to make it. But that is just the rudiments. It's then really getting to know it. It's, it's a little bit like I know how to ride a bike, but if you're going to win a race, you've got to learn how to properly ride it. Um, and so, um, so yeah, it, it's it's taken six months to really get to grips with the machine, having understood what all the parts are and and how they operate and what the process is, etc. Right. So you started out making Corozo buttons, which are from a South American nut, um, a plant that is called the Tagua palm, I think. That's correct. Yeah. So it's it's a natural. Yeah. Natural substance. I see a lot of people talking about corrosive nuts, but I mean, until I actually took a look online, I had no idea what one looked like or where it came from. Well, that makes two of us then. But you also make milk-based nuts, uh, buttons? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, it's very interesting. Corrozo, um uh, as well as actually milk casein, uh, so we, we call the material codolite. Um, uh, uh, after a long kind of uh, history of uh, 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 companies that all named their their milk casein by different names to give it kind of uh, you know a little bit more uh, individuality, um, but Corozo had been used in button making at least uh, since eighteen seventy five. Um, and indeed, um, uh, as part of the, the heritage uh, uh, information that we got from James Grove, we know that they were making um, Crozer buttons around about that time, 1875, and that they were paying between five and ten pounds a ton. Um, now, uh, I can't quite remember how much we're paying at the moment, but it's hundreds of pounds, um, if not thousands. Um, it, it's a completely different number. But um, it was it was quite a good uh, uh, business, but then apparently the costs went up, and uh, at the same time, horn started to appear, and so they they migrated into horn and uh, it, and didn't really do a lot of uh, of corozo. Um, milk casein actually was uh, a material that was perfected um, about thirty miles away from our factory in a place called Stroud um, in nineteen oh nine by. Um, 
uh, I think he was a, a, a Russian emigre um, from Lithuania. Um, and really, the process is an extension of cheesemaking. So you could imagine you have literally dairy milk and you are separate the, the, the solid curds from the liquid whey. And then through a series of processes, you uh, extrude, you take out all of the, 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 uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the liquid out of it until eventually, and through different processes, you're left with a really solid uh, uh, material from which buns can be made. And so buns have been made of uh, milk casein going back to, you know, the uh, kind of 19, mid-1910, so 1915 and onwards. And it became the staple because uh, in, in many ways, um, it's, it's a stable material um, and it's got a lot of the properties that, say, um, uh, polyester would have that eventually replaced it. But it's very stable. It's very durable. It's uh, um, it, it's it, you can manipulate it in lots of different ways. So introduce pigment to it, introduce color to it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so a very flexible uh, uh, material. Um, so yeah, it, it was made by around about six different factories in the UK. It was big business, um, but one by one, you know, they started to uh, disappear. Um, and really, uh, there was a confluence of two uh, events. So uh, the Second World War obviously took an awful lot of uh, um, uh, 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 foodstuffs out of the market. And so actually through rationing, etc., cetera, uh, milk and milk products went up in, in price. And they continued even you know, into the 1950s at the same time that then people were starting to develop uh, uh, petrochemical-based uh, um, alternatives. And once polyester had been c- created, it was so much cheaper that it was within around about 10 years, you know, milk casing just disappeared from the market. So Grove last made um, uh, casing buttons in around about 1972, I understand. So when we started making them again in 20. 20- 18 was it something like that it was you know, it was 46 years um but the, you know the big wheel has turned and so whereas people would have been used to and had very little alternative to but to buy natural material buttons in the past um it went on to you know the culture of uh, what is the cheapest you can find that is practical etc to a position now where people are once again interested in the provenance, the, the uh, uh, eco-credentials of, of that material, and things like uh, um, uh, milk casein, corrozo, uh, coming back into their, uh, into their own. Because they are regarded as natural products and they have the sort of eco-properties yep. of something natural. I think I read that these will actually degrade if you put them in the ground. Um, not quite. Well, they they, they would, um, and uh, certainly. But there, I mean, there's a uh, there is an EU compost mix, um, uh, a standard mix, and uh, and they are they're considered to be uh, biodegradable if they biodegrade to sixty percent in six weeks, which they do. So if you take our buttons and put them in this in this kind of special EU grade compost, which is supposed to replicate what you're going to find in a landfill, it will degrade over that period of time. 
I've often wondered about those compost claims because I have bought a few compostable items over the years and I've put them in my home compost, which gets nice and warm. Uh, and I've got at least a toothbrush that's been doing the rounds there for several years now, not degraded the slightest. No. <laughs> well, I've not done the experiment on myself, but we do have a certificate to say that it works. Uh, but, you know, I suppose more uh, um, importantly, um, uh, they break down to their uh, base constituents, which is, you know, proteins, fats and so on and so forth. There, there are no nasties in there. Um, and indeed, when you have a look at something like Corozo, um through the whole process of making uh, uh, buttons out of it, um, uh, there is a powder which it is a natural byproduct of, of making the blanks. Well, this is pulverized, ground, and uh, uh, and cleaned, um, sanitized, and so that actually they now use them in in cosmetics as an alternative to uh, um, exfoliant uh, uh, microbeads in uh, uh, in. Um, uh, in in uh, uh, you know facial creams etc. Hmm. This is two blokes in their fifties talking cosmetic facial peeling. Okay, enjoy the moment. It doesn't happen often <laughs> in the context of button making. <laughs> naturally, naturally. Yes. Um, so when you're making casein for buttons um, out of milk, uh, you said it's a byproduct. So it's not you're taking gallons and gallons of milk and making it into buttons. There is some other use for what's left well yes um so uh, we don't make it and again you know there's no uh, factory left in the uk uh, the the only factory that left in europe again is in italy um uh, they use uh, um irish milk uh, apparently it's got a very high fat content um and uh, essentially you you would have literally dairy milk like you would pasteurize and homogenize and, and drink and consume but you introduce um, uh, rennet, which is a naturally occurring enzyme that you would find in the gut of, uh, of cows, etc. And that starts the process of, of separating the curds and the whey. Um, and the, the whey, which is a liquid, will find itself into cosmetics. It will find itself into other dairy products um, and so on and so forth. So it's not actually uh, thrown away. It, it is a valuable commodity in its own right. Um, it's just that... Uh, you're harvesting a certain kind of uh, um, uh, uh, material from it to to harden and to make something from. And I suppose the other thing you can say, actually, is that I do know that there is a vodka manufacturer that makes vodka out of milk whey. So um, if anybody's interested, uh, they could actually wear the buttons whilst they're drinking vodka made of the, the, the same dairy milk, which is really sublime. Sound quite of special interest. <laughs> yes, it is. There are not many people around who would go that far. So, when will you be reintroducing horn buttons? Well, um, we are in the process of doing that right now. Um, uh, and we have got uh, advanced prototypes. It's uh, a, a very difficult uh, process. Um, and again, uh, um, fraught slightly with the, the problems of COVID, because the vast majority of the horn comes from India. And again, with lockdown and global supply chains, etc., um, we have had uh, issues and problems. But also, uh, the, the quality of the horn has apparently changed quite a lot. So Peter Grove, who was the, 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 the last of the uh, Grove family, um, he still visits us 
once a month and uh you know it, it's much more uh, uh what's the word breakable it, it it's it's not as robust as it used to be so we're discovering that actually but uh we're, we've got a lot more waste than than is comfortable to make a sensible economic uh kind of um uh, equation out of it but um, it's not just so. I mean, the process really is that you know, uh, um, from from the horn, which is essentially keratin, it, it's 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 hair that that is being compacted, um, uh, and it sits over bones. So the actual horn itself is is hollow on the inside with a solid tip, and so you've got two components to the horn: one which is the the, the tip, which is known as tip horn. And then actually the other part of it is is actually, uh, um, because horn is a thermoplastic, it's heated under steam and pressure and flattened. Um, and then uh, blanks are taken from that uh, uh, material, and that's known as plate horn. Um, but we only use uh, uh, the tip horn, which is uh, a lot rarer. It's more um, uh, more expensive because there's only a certain amount of horn that you can get from any particular um, uh, um, uh, kind of tip, I suppose. Um, and uh, those are, uh, you know, turned and cut into, you know, kind of slices that are effectively then round blanks, but they can be very different in thickness. They can be very different in in uh, in diameter, and we have to rectify them. So when they arrive with us, they go onto a machine, which, as I uh, um, had perhaps mentioned, you know, are rectified to within one one hundredth of a millimeter in diameter before it goes onto the turning machine and the process of actually making the shape of the button and piercing the holes starts. So. That actually is a fairly quick um, uh, operation. Once you've got the machine set up, which can take hours, again, it takes about 15 seconds to make a button. So you will, you will have a round blank and you will have a finished button in 15 seconds. But then to finish it, they have to be scoured and polished, and that takes four days. So the, uh, the buttons will go into a scourer for three days where the uh, wooden uh, uh, barrels are turning with a compound and wooden pegs for three whole days. Um, and at the end of it, they're taken out. Um, and it's through a combination of heat and through a combination of the collision of the buttons that they get, they actually are rubbing and, and creating a, a surface. And they come out of there and they will go into another barrel for another 24 hours um, with a slightly different compound, with a different wooden uh, uh, wooden cubes as opposed to pegs, and then they'll be ready. So we are talking about uh, 15 seconds to actually make a button and around about four days to finish it. So four days, yeah. right. Uh, and is that, after that, then you have to drill the holes in no, them? So at that point in time, that's the finished product. Um, and then they go through a, a series of quality control checks. And the point about uh, um, horn as opposed to, say, corozo, corozo is is an off-white. It's, it's a vegetable ivory, as they refer to it. And apart from grades of color, it's all the same kind of bandwidth in terms of appearance. But horn changes enormously. And um, it, it comes from different parts of India, and and depending on where the uh, where it comes from, the the patination and the coloration is different. 
So in the north, um, it tends to be lighter, and in the south, it tends to be darker, if not black. Um, and uh, so you have to, before you can uh, put them out for sale, you literally have to grade the color and patination um, before you can then divide them and uh, and so on and so forth. So that is quite a skilled job. And in fact, Grove used to have, oh, three or four people whose job was to do nothing other than separate buttons into the different color um, uh, uh, spectrum. Just trying to think what a career that would be. Yeah. <laughs> it's something you have to love. Yeah. So why is it the horn has to come from India? Surely there are it's water animals. Um, ah. Bubalus bubalis is, uh, is the Latin name. Um, and uh, that is the typical kind of uh, um, uh, source of horn. There is also ox horn as well, which is much lighter. It's blonde. Um, it's got different qualities. Um, but um, uh, the majority of horn is is water buffalo, and it comes either from um, India, possibly from uh, Nepal, and possibly from Bangladesh. Um, the best I'm told comes from uh, Assam, um, and the colour changes the further north you go. So the further north you go, the more colour, more light colour you you will see in it. Um, but it's just that that is the centre of it. Now, there are water buffalo in uh, Southeast Asia as well. Thailand, at one point in time, um, uh, also supplied it, and as did China. Uh, but um, I think, generally speaking, the best quality comes from India, as indeed the best quality carosa comes from Ecuador, which is where we, we buy ours and where we source ours. So why isn't the common English cow sort of usable? Um, it's um, uh, got, so the the animals are are bred for for meat. Um, uh, the, the, these these are kind of meat herds. They're they're not obviously mm. bred for for horns. And indeed, actually, you can remove the horns with, without even uh, um, hurting uh, the. Uh, uh, the beasts themselves, and in fact, in this country, uh, you know, rams. If you have a look at uh, 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 sheep rams, you know, they have to saw off their uh, uh, their horns because they turn around, and eventually they start hurting the uh, the animals themselves. Mm. And they literally do it with a saw. So actually, uh, uh, removing horns is not an issue. But um, uh, you find that you need a certain thickness of of horn. It, it, it there's a maturity to it. And I suppose there's almost uh, also a, an element of climate that determines actually uh, the the the, uh, the the structure and the robustness of uh, of the material as well. And so, whilst you can get antler and there are buttons being made out of antler, um, you tend to find that they are literally stripped uh, from the antler, the length of the antler, sometimes with the bark still on it, and then just cut into you know. Yeah, little round blanks, etc. Pierce for holes, and and those serve as uh, as buttons. But when you try to turn them, they just literally break apart. They don't have the uh, the structure necessary to to undergo a, a process like that. You brittle, right? Would have been nice though to have made British buttons from British horns and. Well, um, there are people now, uh, including a place called Laverstoke down in uh, Hampshire, Jody Schechter's uh, uh, biodynamic and organic farm, uh, 
Um, and there are a few others that actually are keeping water buffalo in this country and making you know the the principal kind of uh, agricultural uh, um, derivative of water buffalo is buffalo mozzarella so mozzarella cheese comes from buffalo milk um uh, and not cow's milk and they are actually making buffalo mozzarella using their own uh, milk from their own buffalo herds um however you know they only have i don't know what how many head they've got but it's not huge and when you consider that actually you know the maturity of the beef certainly for the for the meat industry is between four and five years the yield in this country whilst is possible would be very very low but it is compounded by the fact that um, you have to have certain licenses to get animal products out of a slaughterhouse, um, and uh, there is there is a you, various sanitary uh, um, uh, issues you have to overcome, and it's quite difficult. And because nobody else is doing it, it's almost too much like hard work, basically. Now, I was a bit keen to hear how business was going really now you mentioned that once black horse lane cottoned on to the fact that you were making buttons again mm. uh, things mushroomed um are you finding that a lot of british makers are saying oh look courtney and co making buttons again let's uh let's use them um yeah, I suppose the breakthrough came uh, again completely by accident and not designed. Uh, um, is um, we uh, migrated from uh, uh, posting the occasional post on Facebook, which didn't work at all, to Instagram, and uh, I don't know. We had one or two followers, and from one or two followers, one or two more followed, and as is want through social media. I think we've got about 2,400 followers now. Um, and uh, people started to watch what we do. But, but um, uh, to me, it's the, the, the product is interesting, but actually the, the history behind it, the provenance of the material, the process of making it, the, the, the skills involved are, are more interesting than perhaps you know, the, the humble button that comes out of it at the very end. And so in the Instagram um, that you kindly follow, we do try to tell the story and and uh, explain, you know, about buttons and button making, etc. And I, I suppose I've, we've created, um, I, I'd hesitate to say a brand, but a mark or a name at least, which is associated with four things, natural materials, traditional techniques, um, heritage designs, and made in England. And because we've sold those as a package, people have kind of uh, recognised that and say, actually, I like the value proposition, and therefore I want to buy into that value proposition. So um, whereas most people... Uh, most manufacturers would be selling to button merchants who literally look as a button as a button, but we don't sell to merchants. We only sell actually to, you know, designers now and uh, and fashion houses and tailors and so on. Um, and essentially, what they're doing is they're looking at our story and then weaving our story into their story and telling their customers about where they get the components, whether it's down to the, 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 the fabric or the, the wool goes into the fabric. But they do and have been naming us as part of this kind of community of, uh, of you know, suppliers. 
which is only kind of embellished um, uh, uh, our presence in the marketplace. And so people actually um, have started to take an interest in buttons and button making and, and you know, how, how they come about and um, uh, what, what's involved, etc. It's strange how you put that, because that is precisely what I've been talking to people about when I say, what buttons do you use? And they say, oh, something or other. And I say, you should use Courtney & Co. They come with a free story, <laughs> which means, well, you've got something more to say about what you're making. Well, do you know, the, the, I think the world, and, and I am not an expert by, by a long chalk because I've got no kind of background in this, but it, it strikes us that the world, the, the, the garment world um, industry is, is, is divided into three kind of areas. Number one, which is just fast fashion, pile them high and sell them cheap. And nobody's interested in anything apart from what it looks like on the night, and that's it. Then you go to the other extreme, which is highly branded, highly priced, and people will buy into it because it's got a brand name on it that they want to show off to everybody else. And then there's the third constituent, which is really where we are active, which is about value proposition. It's about when you buy this garment, this is what you're buying into. This is what you are doing. Um, and this is why these uh, uh, garments cost what they do, because you can trace you know, the, the whole process down to individual makers, etc. And And again, you know, with some of our customers, we, we've uh, um, uh, uh, filmed, uh, you know, certain processes, the dyeing process. So, so actually, you know, they, they will post it onto their social media platforms. And so the customers can actually see the buttons on the garments they're wearing actually being dyed, you know, in, in the dye shop, uh, um, in our dye shop. Do you get a lot of special requests or custom orders or sort of something really special from places that want something like that? It's uh, happening more and more. Um, uh, and again, I suppose uh, uh, COVID, the uh, pandemic, um, and I, uh, yeah, it has had a, a, an impact on us. Um, there was a, another quite well-known uh, button merchant whose proprietor sadly also passed. Um, uh, but they had their own dye shop and were very, very highly regarded, actually, in that space. But when they closed down, um, there are just fewer and fewer specialist dye shops uh, around. And so um, whilst we sell uh, buttons in five standard colors, we're talking Corozo principally, um, you don't really dye horn for reasons I could come on to. Um, uh, the milk casing buttons uh, are dyed as well. We dye them all to, to customer order. Uh, but um, I would say probably around about 30% now of our uh, orders are coming for bespoke colours as opposed to a, a custom colour, a, a, a standard colour, which is uh, black, brown, grey, navy, or natural. So we we support the stock in, in all of those colours, in all of the patterns, in all the sizes. So we've got a growing um, inventory of, uh, of buttons, but then we have to have a second stock of buttons that we can finish to customer uh, specifications and colours. Can you do all the fancy stuff like they do in... I don't know where they make fancy buttons with the sort of uh, company logos along the edges, and we we do, we can. 
we are having problems uh, because, uh, again, the etcher is, uh, is quite antiquated and so on and so forth. So in actual fact, last week um, I was in Northampton uh, looking at a, um, a manufacturer of uh, lasers, bed lasers, um, a completely different uh, structure from from the machines that the Italian supplier makes, um, less automated, but a tenth of the cost. Um, so, but I think, you know, in all honesty, uh, the branding of buttons it, it has become popular. I, I personally don't see a, a great deal to it because unless you really get up close and personal, you can't see that there's writing, much less what it says. But where we're more excited uh, um, on etching side is that actually you could um, uh, put designs um, on it and you can etch into the designs. And then through the finishing process, you can actually um, uh, uh, make a button, you could actually dye it, and then you etch a design in it and so that the colour comes out in relief to the, uh, the colour of the button. So... There are some really exciting opportunities that could come of that. But as I was mentioning this, this is a process that takes time and skills and money. Uh, and I, I wouldn't even want to tell you how deep we are financially into this at the moment. But it's, it's pretty deep. Um, and we've just got to make sure that when we're making more capital investment, you know, we can amortize it over a reasonable period of time. Could you just hint at it in a number of buttons, perhaps? <laughs> in the number of buttons, <laughs> millions, millions. Right? Yeah. No, it's it's it. Um, and I suppose this is, you know, both a, a, a good thing and a bad thing. The barriers to entry are huge, and, and quite honestly, because of my other work, which subsidises and has done this button making business all the way along. If anybody else tried to set this up from scratch, you know, over the time frame that it's taken us, you would be losing money hand over fist for literally years and making substantial capital um, uh, investments over years with an unknown outcome. You know, if you went to an investor with, with this as a, you know, a, a, a value, as a financial proposition, you'd be laughed out the room. And it takes a madman like me really to go. Oh well, I'll I'll have a crack at it anyway, um, and that's kind of what's happened. I think that's incredibly spunky of you. Um, that's one word. Um, <laughs> mad is another. Uh, completely <laughs> impetuous is a, is yet another. But there we mm. go. Well, I mean, given that the British button industry basically went away, uh, I mean, it is pretty brave to start up again. Um, and, and what was it that really killed it to start with? Um, it, it was, a, um, I suppose, uh, as I mentioned, most button makers uh, had no relationships whatsoever to the end users. They went through merchants, and the merchants really controlled uh, everything. But a button was a button was a button. You know, it didn't matter where it came from, didn't matter but, um, uh, who made it. The bottom line is, do you have, you know, a, a thousand buttons of a particular type, of, of a particular colour, uh, of a particular size at, at a particular time? And if not, they would go out to tender, find out, you know, the button makers and manufacturers, uh, um, and they would get the cheapest price possible. They would place orders, restock, and then uh, and then supply their customers. And so 
there was a, a major hemorrhage between the makers and, and the users, um, uh, which was a part of that, um, the, the structure of the market. Uh, you know, it's been around ever since, you know, day one, I suppose. And so when uh, uh, none of the button makers had a public persona, so and they didn't really know who to sell buttons to. They didn't know who really were was in the market for it. And so um, if you kind of take it that it became commoditized, it really didn't matter where the buttons came from, whether they came from Vietnam or Turkey or China or uh, um, uh, any part of, uh, of Europe. The bottom line is it was a button. It served a purpose. And, uh, you know, completely accidentally, we've broken that mold, it seems. And because of our presence on Instagram and what we're doing to tell people about button makers, we have kind of redrawn the, the way in which, which we work. Um, so had we have kind of existed under the old regime, we would be in exactly the same problems, I think. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. That's interesting, because I was, uh, before we started our chat today, I was uh, having a little think about what, what sort of garments I have that use your buttons, and I know I have a few. but. Um, I couldn't really think of that many because I was going to sort of hang them behind me here and charm your socks off with all my Courtney and Co buttons. And, but I imagine now that with your story, you're back, you're supplying environmentally friendly buttons and that all the British sort of heritage makers, all the people who, like you mentioned before, would like to include the buttons provenance mm. in their story. They must be beating your door down. Um, we get, I don't know, three, four five inquiries every week um we do no marketing uh we have a social media presence um but most of our um new customers are referrals or um uh, some of them um uh, have come through uh, uh through instagram and so we are actually exporting all all the way around the world it, it is just absolutely sublime we've sold buttons to Australia, Japan, uh, um, uh, Korea, um, South Africa, the, the States, Canada. Uh, you know, it's just extraordinary where, where all our buttons are gone. And I can credit that down to real uh, Instagram. And so, um, yes, we have got, you know, a growing following. We've got um, uh, more people buying more buttons from us more frequently. And so, it's going very well. But, you know, two years ago, of course, during uh, uh, lockdown, um, our you know, business took a, a massive hit. Uh, you know, we were, we were very, very quiet for a number of months because nobody else was buying buttons. 
So we, we kind of recovered quite a bit in in uh, uh, last year, and we more than doubled our turnover last year compared to 2020. And we're kind of more or less holding our own now in 2022. Um, uh, but there are other challenges out there in 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 the in the world kind of economy. Buttons are so useful and essential. I mean, surely. There will always be a demand for proper buttons. There will always be a demand for buttons. Um, uh, uh, I suppose, again, you know, the problem that we've got at the moment is that you've got two different uh, uh, challenges. You've got, on the one side, inflation challenge, where prices are going up, but then we are facing a, a, a certainly stag- stagflation, stagnant uh, uh, economy, if not a recession, where certain companies are trying to uh, um, uh, reduce the cost of production. And so you are looking at a situation whereby you're trying to almost get blood out of a stone, quite literally. Costs are going up, and yet the uh, the, the demands are there for uh, for cheaper, and they just don't stack up. It's just an, it's an impossible circle to, to round. So um, you know there are big things going on. We're active in a particular part of the market, which is less. Um, sensitive perhaps to those uh, um, uh, challenges, but they are being hit by them. There's no question about it. Um, you find that um, people are trying to press your prices down? Well, funnily enough, we have not changed our prices since the day we started in 2016. So we sold our first button, I think, in, in October, November 2016, and we haven't changed our prices since. So, um, if anything, what we're uh, trying to do is—I mean, it's it's the equation of uh, gaining more efficiency. So, by making more buttons, you can reduce the unit cost, and by reducing the unit cost, you can actually uh, keep the price down, but uh, through volume, hopefully, make more contribution to a profit. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, there are price pressures. I mean, on everything from freight to the raw materials themselves to the dyes to uh, staff to electricity. Uh, we're actually now looking to put uh, uh, PV on the roof so that we can actually uh, um, uh, uh, come, if not entirely off grid, mostly off grid, so that actually we can make buttons using sunshine. Um, because the, our tariff for electricity has just literally doubled in the last round. So um, so we're looking at investing in different ways to actually keep our costs down, and through keeping our costs down, we, we can pass those on, perhaps not in, in absolute terms, but in, in relative terms to our customers. Mm. Oh, they'd be more environmentally friendly, wouldn't they? And environment, yeah, exactly, <laughs> which is part of you know the overall picture. Uh, that we're trying to uh, develop, and it, it has got, um, you know, a, an authenticity to it. So, what reason would say British makers have to not buy your buttons? I'm sort of thinking price, availability, styles. I mean, is there anything you can't supply? Um, uh, well, uh, I, you're talking about different sectors of the market. Um, and uh, if you have a look at a polyester button, people are selling them uh, in uh, by hundreds of kilos, if not uh, in the tons. And uh, you know there are certain kind of uh, buttons, certain you know uh, uh, places you can go. You can probably pay a penny a button. 
Well, you know, we are paying a, a factor of that just for blanks, let alone for, you know, a finished product. Mm-hmm. And so uh, by definition, the, the natural uh, raw materials are always going to be more expensive than, than they will for a, for a uh, um, you know, polyester n- nylon button, etc. Um, so uh, you're going to look at a particular segment in the market to start with, and it's a question of how, how broad that, that and big that market is. Um, and really concentrate on that. But then you get into the point where actually, uh, I mentioned we are still a small company. As, you know, there, there are four of us now. Um, uh, uh, buttons are made in not the hundreds of millions, but in the billions. You know, if you think about how many garments are sold around the world every year and try to count the number of buttons on them, it is, it, I, I, I wouldn't even know where to start so we are faced with a situation whereby we are perhaps limited in terms of the kind of customer that we can support by our capacity by our resources so you know to us an order 25 30,000 buttons of of one type one kind at one you know is is a good order for another button maker it's hardly worth putting the machines on sounds a lot to me <laughs> it it's a, it is an awful lot to me as well, kind of coming from where we started, which was you know selling buttons, you know in multiples of hundred. Uh, the minimum order was was a hundred buttons. Um, even today, it's a, it's three hundred buttons minimum. Um, uh, and I suppose that's why. But but in some ways, it's quite good because we do actually have a a, a good relationship with a lot of up and coming designers. Uh, and this is kind of an area that we want to actually uh, um, uh, foster. Um, we sponsored uh, the Golden Shears com- competition, which was the apprentices on Savile Row. Um, and we supplied some of the entrants to, to that competition. But we also supply um, uh, students who are doing their finals at uh, Central St. Martins or UAL or whatever, London College of Fashion. Um and we we like doing that. Um, it, it's 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 a good place to start. And of course, as they grow and become successful, you know, we may grow with them. So it's kind of the planting seeds for for the future. Sounds like this has also been a tremendous learning experience for you. Oh, uh, it, it it has been. It's been a, a roller coaster. I know that is a word that does get banded around quite a lot but emotionally it it, it is huge because um i mean even down to simple things like just trying to source things um you know you have you know the internet but actually you've got to know what the names of things are you've got to know what the what the formula is what 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 they're used for and if you have never done it before you really are starting not at zero but you're starting at minus which is again, you know, uh, one of the barriers to entry. It's not only, uh, you know, the cost of it, but getting the skills and understanding the whole process and sourcing is is absolutely huge. Um, and it has been a roller coaster. I mean, we have, you know, had so many setbacks, including you know COVID as well, and you know. There have been a number of things, but we're still going. We're rocking and rolling with the punches, but we're still standing. At what point do you think you'll be able to get a good night's sleep again? Um, 
I'm getting there. I'm not a great sleeper, but I am getting there. I, I can do probably three hours now at a stint. But um, but no, we are getting there, and it actually it is a, a wonderful feeling um, in, in a, a very ethereal world to be back in the material world to actually get a raw material and making a finished product out of it, it gives you a sense of enormous satisfaction. Um, and whilst I don't want to lose a lot of money doing this or continue losing a lot of money doing this, the ultimate kind of um, uh, kind of motivation wasn't to make a lot of money. It, 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 I really wanted to get back involved and revive it, etc. And and somebody once said, you know, kind of uh, money comes with success. You know, it's a byproduct success. It's it's not the 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 end in itself. Um, and we just want to make the best buttons we possibly can and find a market which appreciates what we're doing, um, and hopefully will support us and you know keep us going. Sounds worthy and good to me. Sort of in closing, David, is there anything you'd like to mention? Anything you'd like to plug? Any upcoming buttons you'd like to well bring forth? Um, <laughs> it's almost like uh, uh, doubling down because um, uh, it, it's it's odd. You do catch the bug. So um, actually, um, September 2020, we agreed to buy Britain's last leather button maker. So um, a company that, that was uh, established in the early 1950s, um, uh, passed on from father to son, but the son turned 80 um, and uh, there were no future generations. And so he decided to um, wind up the operation. And so we actually bought all of the machines and the heritage of Britain's last leather button maker with the intention of reviving leather buttons uh, as well, which is a, a genre all of itself because it's a completely different process. Um, but it, it ticks all the boxes in terms of natural materials, um, uh, processes, history, etc., etc. Um, so that's where we're going. Leather buttons would be the ones that look sort of slightly woven. Um, there's a special name I can't remember. Some right people now. refer to them as football buttons. But um, quite right. honestly, uh, um, that, that was certainly a part of uh, the uh, the range of buttons that this company made. But we are looking more at uh, solid leather buttons, whether holed or shanked. Um, uh, and you introduce designs because they use different uh, um, uh, embossing tools, etc. Um, and uh, we we bought embossing tools, and the company used to make uh, leather buttons for Aquascutum, for Burberry, for some great names, etc. We have got you know hand uh, uh, sunk dies uh, from uh, from those uh, uh, companies as well. But um, it, it it operates on a different thing. But we want to take it into a different area, which is going to be, uh, again, low uh, volume, but more personalized. So uh, um, somebody could actually require maybe their family crest to be embossed on the buttons. Maybe they want uh, their name to be embossed on the buttons uh, There are or their initials or whatever. Um, so... Once again, we're looking at you know a very small segment of what could be a much bigger market. But again, part of the the, the beauty of it is you know it's it's about the raw material. So we're going to be working with a uh, one of the uh, last um, uh, 
uh, suppliers um, in in UK, Thomas Ware down in Bristol, um, been operating since 1820. Um, they still work on guild principles that applied 500 years ago. So the um, the, the skins are literally um, uh, 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 tanned for a year and a day. They stay in these vats for a year and a day, and then they are starting to be processed. So uh, we're going to be using their leather um, and um, <laughs> using some even Victorian machines that make the shanks that we can do ourselves. We'll do everything, um, but we're having to actually build onto our existing factory because we just don't have any space. And that's what's really holding us up. Is there a risk in working with people who are sort of the last company still doing something? absolutely. But the problem is that if we don't do it now, those skills will be lost forever. You will not. There are techniques um, that, and and also kind of processes that you know before things would be done by 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 hand and eye, apprenticed you know labour, you know, uh, die sinkers and so on and so forth, toolmakers. They would have been you know apprenticed for years before they were able to you know graduate. But you know you can do it with machines these days. Whether they're as good is another matter. But, you know, there are just skills and processes that cannot be replicated and unless they're passed on. And the understanding of the, of the material, um, you know, how it, how it works, how it, how it responds, um, how to get the most out of it, that, that's not something you can do unless you have been doing it for a long time. And care about what you're doing. Yeah. So we're about to embark. Well, we have been. The, the machines arrived, although, we, again, it's just, just extraordinary. Uh, we, we agreed to buy them in, when was it, uh, September 2020. And the machines arrived, I think, in October 21. Um, uh, but uh, with everything else that's going on, we, we have restored them. We have re, uh, um, re- reconditioned them. We've rewired them. We've done everything. But we we are just short of uh, time and resources at the moment to to actually go into production. Although we have been prototyping again, you'll be needing more staff when you get into that. Yeah, we will. Yes, definitely. Um, and that's going to be the next uh, challenge: um, getting getting people um, on board. Um, it, it it becomes a vocation uh, um, and. It's something that I think you can take immense pride from. It, this, although it's it's a craft rather than an industry at our level, um, and you've got to want to buy into that. You've got to want to do it. Um, uh, you're not going to make as much money as a button maker than you would if you perhaps you know went on an assembly plant making cars in Oxford or something. So people have got to want to do it for all the right reasons. But it's finding those people you know, is going to be the challenge and passing on the skills, of course, because otherwise when we go, those skills will in turn be lost again. That seems to be the sort of general thing going on now where it's it's really hard to find people who will pick up the craft. Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, and it's not just here. I think uh, um, 
there is you know, a, a need for all of us actually to optimize our income because if you don't, you are falling behind, you know, on every measure. And so uh, perhaps in the olden days, you, you could take more of a longer term view on your career and its path and its development. But these days, I think the dynamics have changed uh, somewhat. Um, so, um, so, but, and that's why I suppose our buttons are going to be more expensive because you know we we don't pay minimum wage; we pay well above minimum wage because we need to attract the people that that could work with us. Mm. Um, and so, uh, con- as a result, we have to you know charge more money for the buttons to um, to, to customers. It has to be a viable business. I'm just hoping some some real button heads will uh, get in touch with you. <laughs> oh, there are loads. Um, <laughs> it, it's one of those things that you know most people have got you know uh, access to grandmother's uh, a button jar or button tin where you know and they're so tactile. People tell the most extraordinary stories about buttons that, that you know they really do come alive and and so on. Sometimes I refer to buttons as costume jewelry rather than buttons uh, because they can be so beautiful if you really stop and look at them. They're, they're, it's much more than the prosaic humble button. They're, there is so much skill and thought and care that goes into them. Um, it is amazing, and you know if you have, go back, what. 600 years or something like that uh, buttons would come covered under the sumptuary laws and so unless you were a, a, a higher ranking above a yeoman which is a farmer you were not allowed to have buttons you were not allowed by law under the sumptuary laws of this country to wear buttons so Gosh. um it's um you know it, it is quite something one final question david do you have clothes where you use your own buttons now? Uh, um, every single thing that I wear, wherever I can, uh, uh, have uh, my buttons on it, yeah. Have you carefully unpicked them and sewn on your own? Um, yes, but I do try to support as many of uh, our customers as, uh, as I can. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so the trousers I'm wearing uh, come from one of our customers. The jacket I'm wearing comes do from mention, one of our do customers. Mention, do mention some names. Uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, the trousers come from Whisk, um, um, which is uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing out in Suffolk. Uh, the jacket here is Guillotine. Um, uh, and down in Berkshire, I think they are. Um, but, um, oh, I've got things from surplus. I've got things from, uh, personal effects. I, you know, I have got a, I'm slightly more mature. So, um, uh, my sartorial style is, is geared to a particular look. So, um, uh, I, I have to be a little bit more selective as what I buy, but, uh, but I do wherever possible, uh, buy from our customers. That sounds like a very nice mutual back scratching way of doing circular economy. <laughs> there you go. Okay, David, this was an interesting chat. I now know much more about the button industry than I ever thought I would know. Well, thank you. I, I've, I've enjoyed it thoroughly, and I'm, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I'm flattered that you would kind of consider us worthy of uh, a broadcast. Really, so um, I hope uh, I hope you have found it of, uh, of interest. Indeed, I have. So, okay, bye-bye for now. Thank you very much indeed. Take care.
And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.